0: To turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6 and tonight we're studying verses 13 through 20 we've been working our way now through this letter we have seen most recently uh, the writer take a, a, a diversion we're at the end of the diversion he's going to come back to Christ as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek he wanted to talk about that and you may not have any idea what that means and that's okay he's going to come back to it we're going to talk about that but, but he says in chapter 5, verse 11, they, they really weren't prepared to hear it. And so he had first to talk to them about their spiritual immaturity in chapter 5, verse 11. He had to warn them about those who fall away in chapter 6 because immaturity can sometimes look like you're on the road to falling away. And, um, and so he had to warn them. Uh, but then he came right back, as we saw last week in chapter 6, verses 9 to 12, to comfort them, actually to encourage them. He thought better things, things concerning salvation, for them. And so uh, he said that because he had he knew them. He knew their faith in Jesus. He'd seen the fruit of their faith. He had seen how the evidence that they trusted Jesus because they loved God and had served the saints Uh, and so he wanted them to grow in their assurance that they really did belong to Jesus and their hope was not misplaced their hope for eternal life in Christ forever with God in glory was not misplaced so that they would keep going with Jesus and so he's building them up in that now here in verses 13 through 20 he's not quite done with Assurance of salvation because he really wants to take their eyes off of the works he knew they had done that made him confident of them. And he wanted to put their eyes on Christ and what God had done because that ultimately is where our assurance lies. He wanted to root their assurance in something steadfast and firm. Not in the ups and downs of their hearts. Not in their spiritual progress. Not in the warmth of their love for Jesus. But rather to root their assurance in the steadfast, immovable, unchangeable, rock-solid God. And so that's where we are tonight. From spiritual immaturity to warnings of falling away, apostasy... To the importance of persevering and growing. And growing in assurance and tonight particularly assurance of salvation. The ground upon, the rock upon which we can have it. So let me invite you to give your attention to God's word. From Hebrews chapter 6 verses 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham. Since he had no one greater By whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him together in prayer. And our Father, I pray that you would bless us by this word, uh, that grant that uh, we would be more trusting of you and know you better and more restful in you. Show us your glory and the goodness of Christ, we pray. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God wants his people to have assurance. He wants Christians to have a firm and certain assurance of hope. He wants his children, like any good father, to know that they are safe and secure in his love, even in the face of their troubles or their trials or their temptations. And this passage tells us about assurance. And it tells us it doesn't come from our ability to hold on to him, but Jesus' ability to hold on to us. And that hope is so important for you and I in persevering as Christians. We need this kind of hope. There's a man who tells the story of a little town in Flagstaff, Maine, which was to be flooded. As part of a large uh, lake uh, development, they were going to build a dam and have to flood this little community. In the months before it was flooded, all improvements and repairs in the whole town were stopped. What was the point of painting a house if in just a few months it was going to be covered in water? Why repair anything when the whole village was going to be wiped out. So week by week the whole town became more and more bedraggled, gone to sea, woebegone. Well then, this man added by way of explanation, where there is no faith in the future, there is no power in the present. And spiritually that's true as well. To to lose hope, to have no optimism about the future demotivates us. And people give up. When people think, for instance, that they're always on the edge of being kicked out of God's family, it eventually wears them out, wears them down, and they give up. If you think God is as, is only as faithful to you as you are to him, if you think his saving grace to you is something here today but potentially gone tomorrow, you will eventually resent him profoundly. Why? Because you'll end up feeling like God is treating you like a circus animal who only treats you well when you perform for him. And you can only jump through so many hoops before you fall, before you fail, before you grow exhausted trying to prove how worthy you are of God's love and trying to keep it up so you don't lose it. And the end of that road for you, if you're on that road, is to end up hating God and walking away from him. And people do that through a wrong understanding of God. But there is another way, and it is to be assured that God loves you with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. I have a friend named Brian Habig. He planted a church in Greenville, South Carolina. He tells of a guy who he knew uh, who, in his 20s, was a tremendous uh, college athlete. He was also a well-rounded guy. He was involved in campus ministry. He was well-liked. He led Bible studies. And then he got Hodgkin's, uh, curable cancer, but still a rough road of treatment. And as he went through chemo, he lost everything. He lost his health. He lost friends who didn't come to his aid. He was in the hospital one night. He was trying to walk from the bed to the bathroom, and he finally just collapsed. His body was so weak. And he said there, quote, lying on the floor, unable to even get to the toilet, he said, I got it. I was leading no Bible studies. I had not felt like praying in months. I was doing nothing for Jesus. And on the floor, I got it. He says, I got grace. I was helpless. And I realized God loved me even when I was on the floor unable to do anything for Him. And to this day, He will tell you, I thank God for cancer. This love that will not let us go is so precious. God will never leave you or forsake you, the Bible says. He's a God who is, who is steadfast in his love. And that invites your love of him, not your resentment. Your assurance, that kind of assurance motivates you. It helps you follow Jesus. And, and this is the point. The, the point of the book is to help people who are thinking about walking away. To not walk away, but to persevere. And they need to know that God isn't walking away from them. And so the writer points us to three grounds for this kind of assurance of his love. He points us in verses 13 to 15 to God's promise and God's oath. A kind of double promise. Then in verses 16 to 18, he talks more about that oath, but particularly the character of the God who makes those promises and oaths. And then in verses 19 to 20, he turns us to the Son of God and what he's done. So the promise and oath of God, the character of God and the Son of God. I want you to think about these three things from this passage. This is how we have assurance. Verses 13 to 15, the promise and oath of God. Notice what he says. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now, remember that the author here is writing to, uh, by and large, Hebrew Christians. Those who had left Judaism in fulfillment of Judaism to embrace the Messiah of the Jews. The Messiah of the whole world, of course. And yet they were hurting Christians. Uh, Undoubtedly, many had family or friends, maybe both who had disowned them for embracing the Messiah. They had lost their old religious community. They were trying to find their way in a new social and religious community. We know that some of them had had their possessions confiscated. The world persecuted them, and they were tempted to turn away from Jesus instead of persevering. And so the writer does two things here. He reminds them on the one hand of the example of Abraham, but he also reminds them of the promise of the God of Abraham. And the promise he quotes is from Genesis chapter 22, when God commanded Abraham to offer up Isaac, his son, his only son, his beloved son. Now, we have recently preached through the story of Abraham. So for some of you, it's fresh in your mind. Others... We're not with us, and that's okay. Genesis 22 is is where this promise comes in, but the story goes back to Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, God promised to Abraham a countless offspring. And it seemed incredible because Sarah, his wife, had gone through life barren. Both had reached an old age, and basically they were dried up. And uh, now she's past the age of childbearing, And uh, who could believe that a nation as large as the the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore could come from them? And yet we learn in Genesis chapter 15 that Abraham believed the Lord and he was counted as righteous. He believed. He trusted the Lord. He trusted what God said. But if you remember in our study of Abraham, what happens next? We see that his faith was not without weakness. It's not that he never stumbled. Uh, He asked for signs. In order to believe this, he listened in Genesis 16 to Sarah's plan to accomplish the purpose of God, which was not God's plan, but Sarah's plan, and he listened to her, and so he took her handmaiden Hagar to have children. But that wasn't God's plan, and that child was not the promised seed. He waited some 25 years. Before the promised child, Isaac was born, and God proved true to his promise. And then, having the child, as the child grew, Abraham was tested. God told him to take Isaac and offer him on the mountain as a sacrifice to God. And what did he do? He obeyed God. And just before his knife struck and took Isaac's life, God stopped him. God intervened. God provided a ram in substitute for the life of his son. And you may remember, why why did Abraham go through with, why was he prepared to do that? Hebrews 11, as we'll learn in months, says that Abraham believed God and he believed that though he should slay Isaac, God could or would raise him from the dead and restore him. And God did give him Isaac back, so to speak, from the dead. And so at that point in the story is when God then swears this oath that we find in Hebrews. In Genesis 22, verses 15 to 16 through 17, it reads this way. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. So what's going on? What's the point of bringing this up? Well, it's the story of God doing exactly what God promised. And it is the story of Abraham responding in faith, waiting in hope, waiting in for decades for isaac and then waiting on god to get isaac back and god then promises him again he simply reiterates his promise of this multitude and then he swears an oath on top of it and that's something new now look abraham himself didn't live to see the children beyond isaac But there were, of course, many and eventually a vast multitude until you get to one particular descendant who is who? Jesus Christ himself. And the Bible teaches us that we who believe in Jesus, we are ourselves the fruit of that promise to Abraham. We are, in fact, the object of the promise. When he takes Abraham out and says, Count the stars, Abraham see if you can number them so shall your offspring be god is actually have his, has in mind us who believe in jesus because every promise to abraham is fulfilled in christ the heir of abraham and jesus makes us co-heirs with him of everything promised so if you're following that If your faith is in Christ, you have what was promised. Which is not just that there would be lots of us, though there's that. But it was the promise of forgiveness of sins. It was the promise of acceptance into relation, to be adopted as the children of God. To have the heavenly country, God's dwelling place, as our eternal home to look forward to. And he's saying, look, you can be certain of your salvation. You can be sure because God promised a vast multitude of spiritual descendants to Abraham to be received through faith in Christ. And you, having believed, are evidence of God honoring his promise, not just to you, but his promise to his own son, Jesus, and before that, his promise to Abraham. He's honoring his oath to Abraham so long ago. You, as Jesus puts it in the New Testament, the Gospels, you are the eternal donation of the father to his son. You are the gift of the father to his son. When in John 6, 37, he says, all that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's an invitation to come to him, but it's also an explanation of why you have, if you have, or if you do, because the father gave you to his beloved son to be his bride, a part of his church. And so the point is this, you can be assured God will keep his promise to you. You are after all already the fulfillment of his promise to Abraham and to Jesus. You're already the fulfillment of it. Of course he's going to keep it to you as well. So that's the first foundation of our assurance. The second you find in verses 16 through 18. And it's built on the character of God. Particularly through this oath that God makes. Where he reveals uh, on on its face very obviously his integrity. He's a God who cannot lie. But also... Uh, a little bit under the surface, his humility and his kindness. I want you to think about what this shows about it. First, God's humility in this oath. uh, Notice verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. In other words, it's between people that oaths are significant. We take oaths because why? Why? Because of the uncertainty and the unreliability of human words and promises, right? Due to our own sinfulness, we have trouble following through on our promises. We struggle to believe others will follow through on their promises or tell the truth. Experience has made us distrustful of others and ourselves. These human oaths are taken. We appeal to a higher power. Why? So that we will trust each other, or have greater confidence. Legal authorities uh, require oath-taking in certain circumstances because when people take those oaths, there may be consequences to them if they are unfaithful. So help me God, we say. I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth. We're saying, God help me do it. And we're also saying, God help me if I'm lying because he will be against me. He bears witness against me. So we take these oaths because of our character flaws. Because we can't trust one another. Right? Is that why God takes an oath? Of of course not. That's absurd. God doesn't take his oath here because he's in any way untrustworthy. He isn't. But God takes an oath because our faith is weak God swore an oath to Abraham that was intended he says to convince us verse 17 so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose He guaranteed it with an oath. It's meant to persuade us. This is incredible. God condescends to do what only sinful humans ever really need to do. Just to make us more assured that he stands behind his own word. He doesn't do it because there's anything lacking in him, but because there is something lacking in us. And what I want you to see here is just think about how humble that is. He swears as if his word was untrustworthy, though it isn't. John Chrysostom, the the ancient early church father, said this. Do you see that God regards not his own dignity, but more so how he may persuade people? Even though God bears with having unworthy things said of himself. His wish is to impart full assurance. Do you get that? It is unworthy of him that he should not be believed. It is dishonoring to him for us to doubt him. But we do time and again. And he isn't too proud to stoop to our weakness just so that we can have greater confidence and assurance. That humility is a reason to be assured. But also God's integrity. Verse 18. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. What are these two unchangeable things or two immutable things? They are his promise and his oath. In both, it is impossible for him to lie. And he stacked the deck. He piled one on top of the other. Now look, I had a friend in seminary. Uh, who, who I remember both pieces of advice he gave me this one's for free we were talking about how easily our cars get messy I was talking about how messy my car was at the time I still have messy cars and, and he, said, uh, he said you know we don't have time not to clean our cars and that just haunts me to this day I've obviously wasted a whole lot of time don't let that one wear you out But the other thing he said to me was this. It was a bit of parental wisdom, which I really think was incredibly wise. He said that he aimed in his parenting to be highly restrictive in what he would ever promise his kids. So that he wouldn't ever fail to deliver on his promises. He said, I want to say things like maybe rather than... We will, or I will, or you can, but rather maybe. He wanted to do that so that they would learn to trust him and not distrust him by his failures, and then in turn, hopefully, find it easier to trust their Father in heaven who always keeps his word. Well, I thought that was wise at the time. And I still think it's wise today to live that way. I have found, however, in the trenches of parenting that I fall short of my ambitions. Year after year, time after time, I will say things like, I'll do it or I'll get it, I'll, I'll play or all help or yes we can or yes you can and year after year some of my words certainly disappear into the mist saying one thing and doing another promising and not following through surely some of you have experienced that from me surely the bible is correct when it says all men are liars all people not one of us is guiltless of this and in that way we are not like our heavenly father if he says something he'll do it if he promises you a gift he'll give it he does not indeed he cannot bear false witness and so his integrity this god who cannot lie having stacked promise on promise, that ought to assure you that he will follow through on what he's promised, you who believe in Jesus. Now, the third part of his character we see here is his kindness. Who did he swear this oath for? Well, not just for Abraham. He swore it, the scripture here says, uh, so that the heirs of the promise... Verse 7, God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of, of his purpose. God didn't do this just for Abraham. He did it actually for us. He had us in mind. And how are we described in the passage? We, he says, verse 18, end of it, last half, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. He says, who are we? We are the heirs of the promise. Who are the heirs of the promise? We are refugees, he says. I'm not about to play politics with that. This passage isn't about nation states. It is about the church and what a Christian is. This world is not our home. We are just passing through. We are strangers and pilgrims here on the way to our heavenly city. And we fled. What did we flee? Well, certainly Hebrews has already pointed us to this in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17 when it told us that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. In other words, he is the one who turns away the wrath of God from us by suffering that wrath for us. And where did we flee when we fled for refuge? We fled to Jesus, right? Just as Noah entered the ark for safety from judgment, we who have believed in Jesus have found shelter in him. And what did God do? He welcomed us. He opened wide his arms and he sheltered us. And think what that cost him. Isn't his kindness then? A reason for assurance. The promise and oath of God. The humility, integrity, and kindness of God. But finally he turns our attention, verses 19 to 20, to the Son of God himself. And he gives you three pictures. An anchor, a curtain, a forerunner. We'll close with those. Verses 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Jesus is our anchor. You know what an anchor does, of course. When you're out in a boat and you want to stop and you want to stay in one place without being pushed around by the wind or the waves or the current, you drop a heavy anchor tied by a rope or a chain to your boat. The anchor drags along the bottom until it catches and holds the boat tied to it fast in one place. In a fallen world, that doesn't always work correctly. Though it's a brilliant kind of system, otherwise. Just last week, if you've been watching the news, a U.S. Navy guided missile cruiser, the Antietam, ran aground off the coast of Japan. Now, this is an enormous ship. It's like it's basically half a football length, uh, half a football width uh, in width, and almost two football fields in length it's enormous I can't imagine how much the anchor weighs to hold that thing but the anchor did not hold the ship actually grounded or it hit bottom it had been anchored in high winds out and then the crew noticed that um, that the ship was dragging the anchor instead of the anchor holding the ship but they noticed it too late and so though they powered up the engines they got underway yet the ship They heard it shudder, and then it lost all pitch control on both propellers, which struck bottom. Thankfully, nobody was injured, of course. But it just didn't work right. Now, notice what the author here is saying, by contrast. He wants there to be no mistake about this anchor. We have a, what, sure and steadfast anchor. We have a firm and certain anchor. We are tied, he is saying, to an immovable object. Our hope isn't affected by the chaos of this world. It is sure. It is certain. It is steadfast. Jesus, who is our hope, is never dragged around by circumstance. So our hope in him is never threatened by our circumstance. But more than that, he has anchored us where? To the right place. And it's important to get that right. We're going to come to the curtain here in a second, but it's important to be anchored to the right place. Uh, Until last week's guided missile cruiser problem, the last time a US Navy cruiser grounded, it was the USS Royal or Port Royal in 2009. It hit bottom in Hawaii on one of the coral reefs, which created massive damage. What had happened? Well, a mix of things had happened. The captain had, in the after report, which was leaked, the captain had only had four and a half hours of sleep the night before, only 15 hours of sleep over the last three prior days. He may have been a bit impaired by the lack of sleep. He hadn't been at sea for five years. He was a bit rusty. And the ship's fathometer, what a word, which measures water depth was broken as well as the radar repeaters on the cruises bridge which would have helped pinpoint their position and the global positioning system had malfunctioned so the crew had to switch to a gyroscope and that switch caused them to be one and a half miles off from what they thought was their position audible alarm bells triggered by the discrepancy were disregarded by the ship's crew. The damage was so, so severe it cost over $40 million to repair it and it was intended that that ship should be retired early because of it. Why did that happen? The captain wasn't sharp, the equipment was broken, the boat wasn't reckoned to be in the right position. But again, by contrast, Our Jesus isn't incompetent or derelict in his duty. His atonement wasn't dysfunctional, but accomplished all that God intended, our salvation. And he didn't anchor us in the wrong place. Our anchor is not cast into the depths of the sea, but it has ascended into the most holy place in heaven. Where, after all, has he gone? Verse 19... Into the inner place behind the curtain. What curtain is he talking about? He's talking about the temple of Jerusalem. Where the most holy place was separated from the holy place by a massive curtain, a veil. And all were excluded from passing into the presence of God in the most holy place. None could approach. But once, once a year, the great high, the high priest, only him. And now he's saying, look. By his perfect atonement, Jesus, our great high priest, having passed through the curtain, so to speak, he provides access into the heavenly sanctuary in God's eternal presence. And that access is open to all who come to God through him. And unlike Aaron and the high priest of old, who entered that most holy place one day a year but never remained in it, Jesus entered, having once offered himself as a sacrifice for sins, and he never left it. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he is still there, always living to intercede for us. Therefore, because he's not out of position, we're not out of position. Our hope isn't tied down in the wrong place. He's saying, And how did our anchor get there? Of course, Jesus went there. And how is he described? As the forerunner on our behalf. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament. It isn't a Levitical high priestly term. It's a, a forerunner here is a scout who runs ahead of a following party, military or expedition of some kind. He goes to make sure of the way and to make sure the party following him can get there. The word pedromos has an interesting nautical use. The Greek harbors were often cut off from the sea by sandbars over which large ships dared not pass until high tide could get them over the sandbar safely into the harbor. So what did they do? They put the anchor on a smaller ship that went ahead of them over the sandbar safely and into the harbor where they sunk that anchor properly so that at the high tide, that ship could go into harbor and prior to high tide not be swept away. The entrance of the small vessel into the harbor, the forerunner carrying the ship's anchor was the pledge that the ship itself Would be safe. And because Christ. Our forerunner has entered heaven itself. Having torn asunder everything that separates us. From the love of God. From the very presence of God forever. He is the pledge that we like him. Will enter the very presence of God. In the new heavens and the new earth. The tide of time will wash us in. Storms may howl. Waves may crash, circumstances may get desperate in your experience, but our anchor holds in a safe harbor so you can be sure of God's steadfast and immovable love for you. Let's put our hope in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. We bless you that your salvation is great from start to finish that you hold us in your hand and no one can snatch us out help our souls rest in your great love and then respond in love to you and others in jesus name amen amen let me invite you to stand and we'll sing